0: I'm just going to pray um, that God talks, because there's some times when he doesn't, and uh, what he says is really important, so I'm just going to pray and uh, ask him to help us, help me to say the right words and help you to hear what he wants to say to you, so I'm just going to pray. Jesus, thank you that you're a talking God. Thank you that you are the word, and that you keep communicating. And we often have stubborn hearts and we get hard-headed and we don't have ears to hear. And we're often not good soil. And I just want to thank you now and pay tribute to you that you don't stop talking, mostly. You keep talking. You keep talking to the hard-headed, to the stiff-necked. That's amazing. Just pray that you talk today by your Holy Spirit, that you talk to us through your word to our hearts. Amen. Humans, by definition, define reality. They interpret it and they make stories out of it to make sense of it. Uh, this is evidenced, actually, by the fact that in uh, there's a secular therapy called narrative therapy that counsellors often use. And the whole idea of narrative therapy is narrative therapy is about helping people to look at the story of their life and helping them, in a sense, to rewrite their story. The crazy thing about narrative therapy and about where our culture is at the moment is everyone's saying that there isn't actually an overarching, overall mega-story that's going on. You can make it up however you want. And when we don't do that for ourselves, other people do that for us. So I went down to Woolies uh, Tuesday and I grabbed a few magazines. Because magazines try to define reality for you. So let me show you a couple of these. Let me turn it on. And I'll put it in the context of this. I think generally what we do when we're interpreting reality is we, inter- we, we have a look and we go, that would be hell, that would be heaven, this is the purpose or this is the meaning in it, and this, is, this will be my saviour to get me from personal hell to personal heaven. All right, here we go. Here's the first magazine I found, which is uh, Practical Parenting. Practical Parenting says that heaven is to have prospering kids, to be a fine looking mum, to raise your kids exactly right, because it's ultimately you that does the lion's share of influence in your child's life. Until you get to teenagerhood, and then they stop doing what you tell them to do. Alright? And then you say, it wasn't my fault. Isn't that true? And it, there's a sense in the Practical Parenting magazine that it's your effort and it's your input that's the most significant variable. That's their view on reality. So they're going to help you to do that. In a sense, the Practical, pra- practical Parenting magazine is some kind of a saviour. And for some of you who uh, have had children and had toddlers, it can be a hell sometimes. Agreed? And it's good to find a saviour. But I'm not sure the Practical Parenting is going to get the job done for you. Here's another one. This is a Good Health magazine. Uh, the big deal about Good Health magazine in terms of their definition of reality is you don't want to be fat, you don't want to be unhealthy, you want to look gorgeous, uh, and we've got some diets that are going to save you from overweight hell. That's what they're saying. Here we go. Let's check this one out. New Idea. Sorry, it's actually Woman's Day. The classic thing I found about Woman's Day is this. Woman's Day and New Idea, those kind of magazines are in this market to define Uh, reality by using celebrities lives and it appears to me that these type of magazines what they're actually trying to do is they're actually trying to say look at all these dreadful celebrities you're better than that but look at all these wonderful ones over here why don't you aspire to be like that and the people who are paying four or five bucks for a dodgy magazine sit in the middle somewhere thinking maybe I could be the person who's the wonderful celebrity and I'm geez I'm glad I'm not like that guy Isn't that true? And then you get ads in it like this. Oh, sorry, this is uh, one of the stories in it. Fake it like a celebrity. They teach you how to uh, to look like a celebrity without breaking the bank because you've just spent your money on their magazine. (laughs) Alright? There's this lure, there's this definition of reality you can be a celebrity. You're not as bad as those guys. So you're a chance. So spend 10 bucks, and you might get some good makeup. I don't know what it, what it does for deeds. I hope there's no deeds that wear makeup here, but I wasn't going to be talking about that today. <laughs> Ultimately, this screen is saying this is going to be your saviour to get you from the hell of being a terrible, terrible person to being the celebrity that you desperately crave. And then you have, I think, uh, a lovely, beautiful, totally untrue advertisement. <laughs> is that Katy Perry? Yeah. Seriously, wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't it? Oh, think about it. If all you had to do to be in control was to, to, was to buy proactive, wouldn't that be good? It'd be dudes buying proactive, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you? You just go, it's that easy, like 50 bucks, and I'm in control. That is the biggest heap of bollocks right there. And then we're going to finish uh, for the dudes on the UFC mag. What is the UFC, the ultimate fighting definition of what reality is? Well, you can see the saviour little statement at the top of the UFC mag, fan the fighter in 18 weeks, right? And you can see that guy's the head of uh, UFC, uh, Dana White. Uh, you notice the subtitle there, On World Domination, Respect and the Power of the... Anyway, we won't go into that. But here's the bottom line. What's UFC about? It's about domination. Hell is being weak. Hell is not dominating. Hell is other people dominating you, and we're going to save you. We're going to show you how you can be an ultimate fighter, and you can dominate other people. You flick two pages in in this magazine, and you see this. I thought this was hilarious, all right? Maybe you won't, but I thought it was cool, so it doesn't matter. You get in, and there's uh, an energy food, right? And you can't quite uh, see it, but uh, the actual name of some of these flavours here is like chocolate, snail, vanilla snarl, alright, it's about getting you angry and getting you dominating, and then on the left, this is the right hand side of the uh, the page opening on the left, I thought this was a classic, look at the top energy bar there, it's actually a wild berry flavour, <laughs> so some dude who's going to be a world dominator is buying wild berry muesli bars. There are lots of things that define reality. We define reality. We can go through times in our our life where our experience defines reality. Depression and suffering defines reality, doesn't it? Anxiety defines reality for us. And Bill Clem from his book Disciples says this, Our personal story is actually a distortion of reality and a desire for significance. That's interesting, isn't it? Mike Wilkerson in his book Redemption, which we're using at the project, said this, We are meaning makers, hardwired to interpret life. As Paul Tripp says, we do not live our lives based on the bare facts of our existence. We live our lives according to our interpretation of those facts. In other words, it's not our raw experiences that determine our lives, but the meaning we make of them, the stories we tell and the stories we believe. Out of those stories, we live our lives. And big idea today is the more you are defining reality, the further you are away from it. That's the big idea. The more other people are defining reality for you, the, more, the further you're getting away from it. My title for today is this, The Bible and Christian Psychosis. You know what psychosis is? Psychosis is a severe mental disorder in which thought and emotions are so impaired that contact is lost with external reality. We live probably as Christians in a state, for those who are Christians here, we live in a state of perpetual psychosis in a spiritual sense. We we get out of touch with reality. And there's, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are and how long you've been a Christian for, I'm telling you today, you don't see reality the way that it is. You just don't. And sometimes we get passive and we let other people define reality for us and that will lead us into a state of psychosis and other times we'll do it ourselves. And probably, I'll be honest with you, your biggest problem is going to be you. It's not other people. It's going to be you. And you're going to get totally disconnected from reality and totally disconnected from spiritual reality very, very easily and very, very quickly and What's going to help you? Well, we're doing Hebrews at the project. And so I'm going to read the first four verses of Hebrews because the first four verses of Hebrews help us to see reality. You know, I was looking at some Facebook status posts this morning. We're going with some absolute drivel, don't we? Isn't it ridiculous? Aren't there so many wasted, pathetic, weak words said? Aren't there? And we don't even pay attention to the word. This is, I mean, seriously, if you were to take the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1 and put it on the scales, next to the rubbish that we go on with, next to what's in the Chronicle, what's in the Courier Mail, even next to what our politicians say, it's featherweight. It's not even a feather. I talked about this at the project last week. Whatever happened to the practice of meditation for Christians on the Word? Whatever happened to it? I'm just about to read a scripture that is incredibly weighty and just absolutely pregnant with meaning. And we're just too busy. Yeah, I'd rather go and I'll make a status update on Facebook. I've got time for that, but I don't have five or ten minutes just to sit down, read one scripture and chew it over. Here we go. I'm going to read this slowly because we often read to read, don't we? And it's just, this is like a hard-boiled lolly, all right? We want to get in, just read it, let's chew it up and spit it out and work out what we're going to do, right? This is not one of those scriptures. In fact, there's not many scriptures in the whole Bible that are like that. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. I mean, we could stop there, couldn't we? I mean, we're only halfway through, but linger on those. This is not some random person that just walked out of Grand Central and had a good idea for you, all right? This is some seriously authoritative word that's coming, not just directly from God through the prophets, but through his son. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Suck on that one. Exact. I mean, this is the one that speaks. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only that, but after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, we're going to hook into the first sentence. Let's get cracking. God spoke. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. This is amazing. This is amazing. In John 1, verse 1, we actually find these scriptures. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, imagine if it was, uh, instead of John writing that, imagine John wrote, in the beginning was the body language. I mean, it sounds weird, but God could express himself by body language, couldn't he? And it'd be your job to work out what he meant. In the beginning was the frown. You reckon God could frown? I reckon he'd have a wicked frown. All right? A holy, righteous, wicked frown, but you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) In the beginning was the emotion. Imagine you just got to look at God and you saw an emotion. He didn't talk to you. You see, we just take it for granted that God talks. In the beginning was the feeling. In the beginning was the action. And you had to interpret it. You had to work out what it meant. You see, God doesn't have to talk to you. In fact, he's got lots of good reasons not to talk to you. There's no buff angel in heaven that's got God's arm up behind his back forcing him to talk to you. See, God's a self-revealer. He is a self-discloser. He does it. He does it, and he does it because that's part of his character. We are not We are not self-disclosers, are we? We work very, very hard to make sure that people don't see parts of our lives that we don't want them to see. And when people get close, man, the hackles come up sometimes. And even more so when someone's offended us. How much have we offended God? Does he not have the right to just say, I'm not going to talk to you anymore? I won't talk. You never listen to me. You're hard-hearted. You're stupid. You're a dumb sheep. I could just leave you alone. Even more so because his enemies killed him. Kill his son. Wouldn't you be upset if you were God? Wouldn't you stop talking? If you were God, how would you tell a human who you are anyway? How would you do it? How'd you make it plain to people? Would you sky write bullets up in the sky? Would you write words like eternal, infinite, wise, holy, powerful? How would you do it? would you sign your name on everything and stamp it with good little plaque i grew up in presbyterian churches where everything had a plaque on it all right someone died and they gave some kind of pot plant also you know so you stick it on as one of them had blinking corks from a wine bottle so we're just kind of going to go i don't know what that means in a presby church i hope they didn't drink them all at once before they donated it <laughs> it's actually not that easy to disclose yourself and in a sense, it's not that easy for God to disclose himself. But nothing's hard for God. So he does. And he talks. And he talks all the time. And he tells you what he means. And this is what Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 that we just read before. But you know what? Don't, just don't take it for granted. This is my first point. Don't take it for granted that God talks to you. Because we actually see in Amos 8 verse 11 to 12 that there are times where he doesn't talk. Check this out. This is scary. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Because he stopped talking. And you know what that's like when you've uh, had a relational conflict and the other person stops talking and how incredibly caustic that gets, doesn't it? It's just like, I can't even work with you. I can't even get to work this out because you won't talk to me. And this is what God was doing here. And this is like, man, you talk about smoking people out and he's smoking people out. I'm not going to talk anymore. Let's move on. Hebrews 1, at many times and in many ways, you know, God didn't have to talk to you lots and lots of times. He could have just said one thing. He'd get with the program. And he did it in lots of different ways. You see, God actually isn't withdrawn and uncommunicative. He's very, very much taking the initiative to talk to you and to communicate to you and reveal himself to you. You know, every single time that God talks, he tells us generally either about himself or he tells us about us. And that's what the Bible's all about. And that's why you should read the Bible, because you learn about yourself and you learn about God. Let me try a few uh, scriptures on you. You know, God could have just spoken some really random stuff because there's random stuff in the bible right for those who've read most of the bible or all of it what if god was one of those really annoying people that never finish their sentences have you thought about that like he says half the sentence and then he stops so what if god just said let there be and then he stopped and be what all right you're just going what are you talking about he leaves you hanging it's frustrating what about this? What if the only thing God said was Leviticus 21:16 to 20, speak to Aaron saying, none of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs. What if he just said that? He said, That's it, that's all I'm giving you. Work with it. Or this one. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pearls in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabbim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Song of Song seven four. How would you go with that one? Work with me here, you know? This is God this is all I'm telling you. Some of the deeds here again. I'd be happy for him to stop on a couple of other Song of Songs passages, but that'll be all the revelation I need. Or oh, this one, as for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, the appearance was like the glooming of Beryl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, and their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. What if he just said that? That's all you got. He doesn't, does he? He likes reading the Psalms. Stick your hand up if you love the Psalms. He loves the Proverbs. He loves reading the books of Moses in the Old Testament. You see? I mean, if we went through every single person, and obviously we're not going to do that and we don't have time, but if we went through everyone, you'd have your favorites in the Bible. You'd have those parts of the Bible or those books in the Bible where God speaks to you in a really specific and special way. And you know, that's him being really gracious to you. He knows everything. He knows that you're going to come along in 2012 and you're going to have a day in 2012 where you're really down and you're just going to need that psalm, 80, whatever it is, or whatever your psalm is. He knows that there's going to be a night when you're lying in bed at night and your mind just can't stop spinning and you're anxious and you're stressed out and you can't go to sleep and he knows that you're going to need Psalm 23, that the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want, he makes me to lie down. He is gracious to you. You see, if you have difficulty grasping his word in Leviticus, he gives you Proverbs. If you don't see the point clearly in Zechariah, you probably might be moved by the message of Jonah. He speaks lots of times in the Bible and he speaks in lots of different ways and he loves you and he wants to talk to you and he wants to tell you about you and he wants to tell you about himself. So you should listen to him. You know what? In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Phase one is all the prophets. Phase two is God speaking by his son. You see, someone can come up and say to you, can we just have a quick go? And you don't even know him, You're just kind of going, well, should I waste my time listening to you? Why should I listen to you? Why should I listen to your opinion? Especially people come up and they say, you know, can I give you some constructive criticism about what you just did? And you just go, well, tell me who you are. Well, check this CV out for Jesus. Heir of everything. He inherits everything. Everything. Even the rebellious parts of the world, he inherits them. Created the world. I mean, we probably could just stop there, couldn't we? Just go, okay, well, maybe I better listen. Upholds the world by his word. You know, I prayed when we prayed for the service this morning. Literally, if God's creative word stops holding everything together, you and I disintegrate and this building explodes and it doesn't exist anymore. I mean, we can talk about neutrons and electrons and protons and all the rest in the atom. The truth is, biblically... God's holding it together. It's his word that holds everything together. It doesn't just create it. It holds it together. You are totally powerless to hold your own body together. Some of you know that when you look in the mirror. But anyway, we won't go into that. (laughs) Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Can you see that? It's like looking at the sun. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And if that's not enough, he makes purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is way better than the angels. You should listen to him. When he talks to you, you should listen to him. He wants wants to talk to you. He does talk to you. Listen to him. You see, whenever God speaks, he actually defines reality. And it's an opportunity for us. It's an opportunity for you and for me to have our false reality bubble burst. That's what it is. You see, the first time that we know that God spoke into this world was in Genesis, wasn't there? And you can't get any more definitive, any more of a definitive statement about reality than you get in Genesis chapter 1. Here's the first time God talks in our world. What does he do? And God said, let there be light. What's he doing? He's defining reality. He's defining our world. He's defining how it's going to be. And God said, let there be an expanse. And God called the expanse heaven. He's defining. He's defining the skies. And you can see roughly, it's, this is not exactly accurate, this statement here, but God speaks roughly about 17 different things in the first chapter of Genesis. And he's defining, defining, defining all the time. And so you know what you need? And you know what I need is we actually need to bring the word in a really deep way to bear upon our lives. That's our last great hope probably. I do believe God speaks outside of the Bible, but the Bible is the ultimate great hope for me to be shaken out of my false reality that I build up and the false reality that I define. And there is a really, really sweet psalm that talks about this, Psalm 119. Usually, I mean, if I was to do a word association game with you about what is Psalm 119, what do you think of when you think of it? Probably the first thing you'll think is long, all right? And he keeps talking about the Bible all the time, or God's commandments, or God's promise, or his testimonies, or his principles. Same thing, what God says. But you know what the uh, psalmist is doing in Psalm 119? You know what he's really doing? He's actually trying to to rivet the reality of God's words onto his life. That's what he's doing. He's really trying to do that. You see, the first four verses of Psalm 119, the psalmist speaks in the third person. And then, you know, for the whole rest of it, he gets carried away. And it becomes a thing between him and God and him wanting God's word and what God says to actually rivet onto his life so that he sees reality the way that God sees it. I encourage you, I've I've read it uh, at least a couple of times in the last week in preparation for this message. And, uh, man, it is just wonderful. It is really, really good. And if you get into the detail and try and get inside the uh, psalmist's head, you can see what he's doing. He's trying to re-script the inner logic and the motoring that's going on in his heart so that it fits in with, uh, with God and his reality. So what I've done is I've picked out a few themes that show up in Psalm 119. There's lots of things that cause us to view reality in a certain way, but I've picked three that, uh, that the psalmist refers to in Psalm 119. The first one's this. He talks quite a bit about suffering. Suffering has a really powerful effect on us in terms of how we define reality, doesn't it? Hardship, really hard things, whether it be sickness or just real, real really deep struggles. It's a Latin phrase uh, called curbitas in se, which is curving in on oneself. And that's what suffering causes us to do, doesn't it? We curve in on ourselves, we become introspective, things get really hard, we start thinking things like, oh, "I've been in this forever. I'm never going to get out of it. I can't handle this. I'm stuck." Check these scriptures out. The psalmist says this: "This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life." Do you see that? I could get overwhelmed, I could define my whole reality by the suffering that I'm going through right now but I'm actually going to get your word I'm going to get your truth from the Bible and from what you've told me in this case probably the first five books of Moses there the first five books of the Bible and I'm going to rivet that onto my life I need, I need your perspective on all of this stuff so I'm going to rivet that onto my life if your law had not been my delight I would have perished in my affliction see that? it would have it would have won it would have taken me down. I don't know whether that's happened to you, but I suspect most of you, you've had some times of some really deep, intense suffering. And there's moments at... Sorry, in those moments, there's, there's times where you, this thing's going to get me. It's going to win. Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying, this it, it almost got me. If I didn't get my reality from the Word, if God didn't speak to me through the through the Bible, from, from what I know is the Bible, in this case, the psalmist the Old Testament books of Moses. If I didn't hear from you, if I didn't sink my teeth into it, it would have got me. What about this one? Deceitfulness of sin. You see, the very definition of deceived, being deceived is that you don't know. That's what it is. And you just better believe that every single temptation that comes along for you to disobey and to leave God in your heart is a lie and there's a decision time this is one thing we talk about the project every single time you're tempted you have a decision to make about who you're going to believe are you going to believe the lie or are you going to believe God because if the Psalms are right that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore in your presence is fullness of joy and I choose sin or I choose temptation over God I've just called God a liar and I've told him he's wrong I don't believe you. At the at the best, you've said I don't know whether you're going to come through on what you promise. And this is the deceitfulness of sin. And the psalmist here knows that the deceitfulness of sin can frame his reality. It can define his reality for him. And I hope that you can see that, or uh, you've seen some moments of that in your life where the temptation is so strong that the temptation's everything. You don't see anything else anymore. You're like a mime in a glass box that no one else can see, and all you can see is just this temptation and that you don't have any other option but to give in. Even if it just be grumbling. Didn't the Israelites get in trouble for grumbling? Even if it'd just, it just be an escape. Even if it just be finding a false saviour because I'm in a whole lot of trouble right here and I've got to find something to save me. And so you go and you find something else. You play a computer game or you go on the internet or you get on the phone and you talk to one of your friends and you start forming a posse about something that you're not happy about and you don't go to the saviour. You've just been deceived into thinking that your help is going to come from somewhere else other than God. And that's what sin does. It does that all the time. It just lies to you all the time. And temptation lies to you all the time. And your only hope is that God would speak to you and tell you what reality is and define it. And the psalmist knows this. He says this, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. God, help me to see things the way that you see it. That's what he's saying. Help me to see your word, to hear what you're saying to me so that I don't end up doing dumb things. See, the devil is very smart, but he's also pretty stupid, right? He's smart because he gets us all the time. He's stupid because he's still pulling the same strategies on all of us and it still keeps working. This guy Bill Clem who wrote the book Disciple, which we're using in the project, I was watching him the other day and he said, I've not committed a new sin since I was 18. Because if you get right down to the heart of it, if you're finding a a functional saviour, for example, instead of going to Jesus to be your saviour, which most of us do, It doesn't matter how spiritual you are. Even if it just be, okay, this is really hard for me right now, but I'm just going to sit down. And if I could just sit down for five minutes, I can gather gather myself. See, that's deceptive. God wants you to sit down with him and talk to him and ask him for help. He doesn't want you just to sit down and gather your resources together until you feel good enough to handle the situation that you're in. But see, we keep doing things like this. We keep going after functional saviors. We think, if I just put the right music song on, I'm going to feel better. If I just talk to the right person, I'll feel better. Maybe that person over there has got some wisdom. Maybe I'm going to get on the phone and make 15 phone calls and not even talk to God about it. Maybe I'm just going to put two Panadol in my mouth because I've got a headache. There's a king in the Old Testament that got in trouble for going to a doctor before he went to God. His name is King Asa. Yeah, it's not like going to a doctor is a problem, but his confidence and his trust and his dependence and his hope was in the doctor. You can do that with a couple of Panadol, because you take that before you even think that you might just need to stop for a minute and ask God. Do you get what I'm saying? And God wants you to come to Him. He's saying He is the all sufficient Savior for you, and He doesn't want you to get deceived. Or the deceitfulness of sin and other saviours around the place. So you can see like in that whole little riff about a functional saviour, we still keep doing it. It may be a different expression on the surface, but we keep doing the same things. Psalmist says, Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity, no sin, no disobedience get dominion over me. That's what I was talking about before with temptation and how strong it is. Don't let it get over me. Help me to know what you're saying to me. What about this one? I referred to this a little bit before. Sleeplessness. I won't have a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us have trouble going to sleep at night. I wonder how many of us wake up in the middle of the night and can't go to sleep for hours on mean. And then your mind just winds up. You start thinking about the stuff that you've got to do. You start thinking about the pressures that are on. Maybe you're doing that before you go to sleep. You go to to bed and you're, you're lying in there for two hours. Maybe you sit there and you think about the pressures that you've got. Maybe you think about the suffering that you're going through. Anxious thoughts, depressing thoughts, endless circles of thought that you just can't control sometimes. Well, you see sleeplessness shows up in Psalm 119. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. And this one, I rise before dawn and cry for help. Now, it doesn't sound like they set their alarm, does it? It sounds like they can't sleep. They wake up and they just can't sleep. And it's messing with them. And some of you are kind of going, man, I sleep really well, especially some of the young dudes, and I'm just going to stick a flag in the sand here and just say, if you're a young dude and you haven't got something that could make you anxious, you're not doing enough. Alright? You need to find more things to do and you need to take on more responsibility. Alright? Because God's created young men to carry a load, and you just better find something to do that you could get anxious about, because it'll do your faith the world of good if you've got some pressure sitting on your shoulders that can make you anxious. Anyone agree with me? Yeah, good. So just go and get it done, alright? There's too many young dudes that sit around trying to work out how they can stop looking at porn and playing computer games so much. Well, they're just not busy enough. They've got to go and get about three or four more jobs and start taking on some responsibility about the place, and they'll be fine. Anyway, that's not my sermon. (laughs) I rise before dawn and cry for help. Now, listen, he's crying because he's uh, obviously under pressure. He's upset. He's, He's emotional. What's he saying next? He says, I hope in your word. When I cry, when I can't sleep, I hope in your word. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night. Why? That I may meditate on your promise. This has particularly been true for me, to be honest, in the last six months. I have a whole bunch of things on my plate that are anxiety inspiring. And there's been some nights where I've gone to bed and I just can't sleep. And it's not that you just can't sleep and you're sitting there thinking about nothing. It's like this whole vicious circle spins up and you just start spinning and spinning and spinning. And you don't want to get out of bed because if I turn the lights on, I'm less a chance of going to sleep with the lights on and with them off. And it's spinning and it's spinning and it's spinning. And you know, one of the most precious scriptures uh, for me, um, when I was really struggling with that a little while ago was Psalm 23. And it came and it started to define. My community groups heard me share this. It came and it started to define reality for me. So I'm lying there and I'm thinking about all these things I've got to do and people that are depending upon me and sermons I've got to preach and classes I've got to teach at school. And I'm, I'm lying in bed and then all of a sudden, the Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want. Because He's going to make me lie down. And I start meditating on Psalm 23. And I'm sure a lot of you already do this, but isn't it beautiful how God's reality comes in and it rivets on top of the problems and the stresses and the the pressures that we face? Sorry, it's a couple more. Depression. Depression is a massive reality definer. I'm doing some biblical counseling study uh, via Distance Ed with... uh, biblical counselling organisation in the States. And one of the guys here actually said this, and I think this is so true. He said, every single person's an evangelist. He says, the depressed person that walks in and wants to get counselling from you is evangelising you and trying to persuade you and convince you that their view on reality is the correct one. Because depression and and emotional struggles, man, do they define reality? I mean, they're just all-encompassing. Check out what the psalmist says. Think about what he's saying. My soul clings to the dust. Think about that. Those of you who have been through some very, very deep emotional times, my soul is clinging to dirt. It's got that, I mean, it gets pretty close to what it feels like, maybe. But what does he say? He says, give me life according to your word. Don't let the dust and the dirt and my soul define reality. Come in and define it for me. Come and keep defining it in this. Some of you would be able to identify this with this, I should say. My soul melts away. you ever felt like that? you ever felt there's been something so hard that you just felt like you were melting? It melts away for sorrow. But don't let that define me, God. Don't let that define me. Strengthen me according to your word. Talk to me through your word. Define reality for me and help me. Last one. I think I did say three. We've got four. Enemies. Aren't enemies interesting? Enemies wear you down, don't they? They're particularly caustic. Someone who's after you. Someone who's plotting your downfall. Maybe it's at work. Maybe you've got someone at work who's just plotting and scheming and working out how they can take you down. Well, the psalmist feels this too. Even though princes, and I add in Hollywood and Lady Gaga, sit plotting against me. You see, they do. They, are, they have got a very deliberate strategy. I think it was Freud's nephew who uh, was the architect of uh, bringing Freud's counselling ideas into marketing. And I think one of his first projects, as far as I can understand, was the project to get women to smoke because the uh, cigarette companies worked out that uh, their biggest market were the females because none of the females were smoking. And so they came in and they didn't just sell a product. They sold a lifestyle and they showed women that they didn't have what they needed to have. And if they smoked, they'd have it. That'd be their saviour. And you'd better believe that people plot against you. They plot against you to define your reality and persuade you to believe in a world that they want to create right in front of your eyes. And that's what movies do. Movies are about ultimately creating a reality right in front of you and making that very moving and emotionally persuasive so that you'll buy into that reality. This psalmist has got princes plotting against him, working out how to take him down. What's he going to do? Is he going to let them define his reality? And he's not going to do that. He says, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight, they are my counsellors. The insolent utterly deride me, but I don't turn away from your law. You see, there's sometimes underneath attack and underneath oppression that being passive is a way that your reality can be defined by someone else. If you don't fight, if you don't get into it, if you don't oppose it, it will define reality for you. But the psalmist is not doing that. I mean, we could go through lots of other things. We could talk about how feelings define reality for you, how anger does. Uh, You see that big time in about, uh, I think, the fourth chapter of Genesis with uh, Cain and Abel. Anger defined Cain's reality, and he killed his brother. And God came in the middle of it, and he spoke to him, and he said, you just better not stop that. Like sin's crouching at the door and it's going to get you. And God's defining, 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 helping, helping, helping. Cain didn't want it. Here's where we finish. What does this mean? What all of this means is that no one actually has a take on reality that's anywhere near as clear as what reality is that God defines in the Bible. You see, if you think that you do have a good take on reality, that's evidence that you don't. All right? Because that's the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is God coming to you and saying, here's what reality is. Now, you might have a little slice of it. I'm not saying that we don't all have a slice of it, but you just want to get more than a slice, don't you? Isn't that what you want? Yeah? Here's my tips for you. I think we need to recover Bible study. See, people in the past used to talk about uh, devotional times. they talk about, uh, you know, worship times. But you know what? I've heard it numerous times, you know, from years ago, where people go, you've just got to set time aside to study the Bible. Now, exegesis and hermeneutics are, uh, are two uh, words that theologians use, and I'll just tell you really quickly what they mean. Exegesis is what the text originally meant to the original hearers. All right? And that that's, takes a bit of work, all right? Because you didn't live 2,000 years ago when the New Testament writers were writing and you didn't know what they were talking about, so you're going to have to do a little bit of work to work that out. But I heard this uh, Bible College lecturer say at one point in time, he said this, he said, a text can never mean something that it never meant. And I think that's pretty, pretty close to the mark. A text can never mean something it never meant. It's like sometimes I think we sit around in Christian community and we read a Bible verse and we kind of go, what does that mean to you? And I kind of go, who cares what it means to you? Do you know what I mean? Who cares what it means to you? What does God mean? What did he mean when he said it? Because hermeneutics is applying what was communicated to the original hearers to today. Alright, so if you do Bible study, you're going to have to sit down and work out what were they originally saying and what does it mean now. Because what it means now, almost always, without exception, fits in with what it meant back then. And I think we need to recover it. The cool thing about preaching is you have to do it. I spent about three nights this week, uh, three and a half nights, working on this. And what is it? I've got to sit down and work out what God meant when he said it. I've got to work out what it meant to the original people so I can tell you. But all of us, I mean, I think if out of this, 20 of you decided I'm going to go and buy some commentaries in a Bible dictionary. That would be really good. Amen? It would be really good. Go home and work out what it means. I mean, I don't have an issue with paraphrases of the Bible. But one thing I love about the ESV version is you have to do a little bit of work to work out what it means. It's a it's a literal, uh, probably the best literal translation at the moment. And you're not reading what someone else thinks it means. You're just kind of getting the bare bones, and you've got to work out what does it mean. That's good for you to do that. John Piper said that uh, if you rake, you, you get leaves. If you dig, you might get gold. And Bible study is digging. Oh, yeah, this is a dirty word. Bible memorization. What the heck ever happened to that? I mean, we do it at the school here, but it almost seems like there's hardly anyone talking about that anymore. You see, I'm gone. My reality is defined at 10.30 at night if I don't know Psalm 23. All right? And it's not like, oh, I've got it on my iPhone. You need to have it in your head. All right? Because you just don't know what God's going to bring in to help you to get back to where he wants you to be at the right moment. And if I didn't have Psalm 23 in my head that night, who knows how much longer I would have gone for. I suspect probably at least another hour. There's been times lying in my bed when I've meditated on scriptures and please hear me, I'm not like, like the world's best scripture memorizer. Right? I'm terrible at it. My wife will tell you I've got a terrible memory. All right, But, oh man, see, I've just lost my point. You, just, you need to have it there. You need to have it there. You need to have the gun loaded and have it ready to go because I'm not going to pick up my iPhone and read my iPhone in bed next to me. And you're not always going to have your iPhone or your Bible to read. So get it in there. And this is like, some of you, maybe even at this point, you're going, oh, you get a bit hardcore kind of discipline, biblical disciplines, right? Just hang in with me for a sec, all right? And seriously... We just need to be reading the Bible lots, don't we? You just seem to be reading it. Just let the reality of the Bible wash over you. And it's at this point, I mean, I think there's a false dichotomy that goes on um, when you talk about things like this, right? There's probably a whole bunch of you who are on this end and you're just kind of going, oh yeah, but if you have all that discipline, it's going to be really dry, And then other people at the other extreme who are just going, oh, spontaneity, that's the way to go. It's all got to be spontaneous. And you've kind of got disciplined people over here, and most of you maybe, they're on this end, or sorry, the spontaneous people thinking about this end. You're just kind of going, yeah, man, I've known some people like that, and dry and crusty people, all right? And then uh, people over here are the kind of spontaneous people, there's all the disciplined people are go, man, they just need to get with the program, right? These guys are, they got some stuff to learn. They're missing out on stuff. They could get gear. And so you end up with people on opposite ends of the spectrum. The really sweet thing about Psalm 119 is that um, for, for the psalmist, disciplines don't mean dryness. They just don't. You go and read it. It's not about dryness. His disciplines are being driven by his hunger and his thirst for God to define him and for God to speak to him. Check this scripture out. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. I had a list of about probably 25 or 30 specific things that the psalmist says about how valuable God's word is to him. And it doesn't sound dry and crusty. See, humans make disciplines dry and crusty. We're the ones that do it. It's not the Bible that does it. We do it. I'm sorry to say, if you're on the spontaneous end, you just need to get into the Word. Writer of Hebrews 1, he doesn't agree with you. If you think, I'm just going to do the spontaneous thing and it's going to pop up whenever it's appropriate, the, the psalmist would not agree with you. He, he would say, It's not enough. It's not enough to do spontaneous. Get in there, get your face in it. I'll finish on this story. Probably about six or eight months ago, um, I was talking to one of my sons. Actually, there was a season probably of a few weeks where uh, we were going to and fro on uh, biblical stuff and the truthfulness of God. And He was only uh, seven at the time. He goes, how do we even know this stuff's true? How do we even know the Bible's true? And so I started feeding him some stuff. And I said, here's the deal, man. And I said, there's lots of books on it. If you want to read it, I can give them to you. He goes, yeah, right, i give them to me. So I didn't have anything else, so I gave him the adult version of the case for Christ. All right? He's going, that's no dramas, I'm into it. All right? And he reckons he was picking up about 50 to 60% of it. He got to, got to about the 35th page in the book. And then I said, well, I said to him a little bit earlier than that, and I said, look, I'll order the, the kind of teenage or older primary version of it for you to have a read-off. Anyway, we're having this to-and-fro thing about how do we know it's true. And you know what? Where we ended up was this. He came out to me one night, and he just said, look, he said, God's never spoken to me. God's never spoken to me, and that, this was kind of a refrain that just punctuated things. All right, it kind of was probably where it started. All right, and then he got into the apologetics thing and it punctuated a little bit through the apologetics thing, and it was just this thing that just kept going on. And uh, one of the things I just kept saying to my son is this: He does. He does. The weapon of choice for the Holy Spirit, according to uh, I think it's Ephesians 6, is the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Bible. And to be honest, I think, I think it's rude. I think someone, and it doesn't solve it just by saying it, but I think someone who says, you never talk to me, needs to repent. Because you know what I think they're really saying? I think they're really saying, God, I want you to be my servant. I want you to talk to me the way I want you to talk to me. You answer to me. I'm going to be the judge of how you can talk to me. You see, when I complain that I don't hear the word of God, when I feel a desire to hear the voice of God and get frustrated that he doesn't speak to me in the way that I might crave, what am I really saying? Am I really saying that I've exhausted his final decisive word revealed to me so fully in the New Testament? Have you done that? Have you had your face in the Word and have you just poured over it and prayed and and learnt everything that you can out of the New Testament? Have you gone to the first phase of revelation that God had in the Old Testament? The Old Testament prophets, the books of Moses. Have you gone through that? Have you just buried your face in it? Have you been digging into it to hear God speaking to you through that? Because that is what the Holy Spirit loves to use to talk to you. It's probably more likely I've treated the Old Testament, and I would say this for myself too, it's more likely that we treat the Old Testament and the New Testament lightly. We skim it like a newspaper. We've dipped into it like a taste tester and then decided that I want something else, I want something different. See, the truth is probably for most of us that we're far more guilty of that than what we think. I'm just going to pray and uh, finish up. God wants to talk to you. God wants to break through your view of reality. God wants you to dig. There should be people just getting massively buff with spiritual muscles because they're working out and they're working really hard to work out what God's saying in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit's coming in and he's speaking through it and they're memorizing it. And they're reading it lots. They're just picking it up when they've got five minutes and they're reading it because they just want to hear God's reality overlaid. Don't you pray with me. God, I just want to say sorry to you. Firstly, for myself. That I've had Proud demands on you about how I think you should talk to me. have got such a generous expression of uh, your words and your thoughts in the Bible. And somehow I still end up sometimes wanting you to do it my way. Pray that you'd help me to do it your way. I've got to pray for anyone here who uh, maybe you've convicted of that. pray that you'd you'd help them to repent because that's an insult to you. That you would be so expressive and so clear and that we would just not want to do the work to hear from you. Lastly, Lord, I just want to say on behalf of everyone here and myself, Lord, thank you so much for talking. Thanks that you tell us what you like. Thanks that you tell us what we're like. Thanks that you're gracious and loving toward us, and that you're patient with us, that you call us stupid sheep, and you're a good shepherd, that you're going to guide us. Please keep guiding us. And Lord, I pray for anyone uh, here today that's going through issues that uh, we've touched on out of Psalm 119, and I ask that your word would define reality for them, whether it be depression or enemies, or sleeplessness, or the deceitfulness of sin, Lord, I pray that your word would be really, really dynamic, that it wouldn't be dry and crusty, but it would be rich, instructive, and redeeming. Amen.